Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. We're so happy to have uh, Eleanor here. Eleanor Henderson was born in Greece, uh, grew up in Florida, and attended Middlebury College and the University of Virginia, where she, where she received her MFA in 2005. Her debut novel, The 10,000 Saints, was named one of the best books of 2011 by the New York Times and was a finalist for the Art uh, Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction from the LA Times. Aidan Lepucky uh, has uh, written a few books, including California, which was a New York Times bestseller, and the novella, If You're Not Like Me. But um, we like to uh, recall to Eden um, by her former title here at Scarlet Books as a bookseller, when she worked with, worked with us um, years, not not years ago, just <laughs> not too long ago. Ten years ago? Ten years ago? Has it been ten years? Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we'll start off with a reading with Eleanor, and then um, Eden will uh, start in interviewing her, and then we'll open up for Q&A. So thank you very much for coming. Hello. That works. Can you hear me? Great. Thanks, Noelle, for that nice introduction. Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here um, and for bearing with me coming in the last minute. I'm still used to Ithaca traffic, where a traffic jam is like 10 minutes long. Um, so uh, thank you. And um, thank you, Skylight, for having me back. It's been about six years since my last book, since I was here. Um, I have fond memories of this place. And thank you, Eden, um, for being here to be my in-conversation with person. Um, I just finished Eden's book uh, before I landed yesterday and was so sad that it was over because then I had to go read another book which would not be as fantastically entertaining. Um, so I'm really excited to be talking with you. Um, I'm going to read, I don't know, maybe seven or eight minutes from um, an early part of this book. So I don't need to set up too much, um, but I'll set up a little bit. So um, this book is really different from my um, first one. Um, it's set in 1930 in South Georgia on a fictional cotton farm in a fictional county. And it begins with two dramatic actions in the first chapter uh, right away that will shape the rest of the book. And the first is that a pair of twins is born. Um, one of them is dark-skinned, one of them is light-skinned. They're born to a young white woman named Alma Jessup, um, who is the daughter of a sharecropper on this farm. And because the twins look so different and one of them is black, um, the sort of nearest black field hand is accused of raping her and in the first chapter is lynched uh, and carried down the 12 mile straight, the, the road that leads to the nearby town. So it's a pretty uh, dramatic uh, opening. And then in the, the coming chapters, you'll just see the family, the Jessup family, as they are sort of trying to reckon with that uh, initial act of violence. So you'll see um, Alma uh, as the main character in these sections. There are a lot of different points of view in the book. Um, but most of this is from Alma's point of view. And so you'll you'll hear about her and her father Juke 
the man who was killed, Genus Jackson, uh, and also um, the young black um, maid who's a sort of companion to Elma and helps her to raise her babies, and her name is Nan. The people of Cotton County were distracted from Genus Jackson, and it was the twins who seized their attention. Through August, as the corn grew high in the fields and the next truckload of pickers showed up, people came to see the babies. They came from church and town and neighboring farms, bearing booties and blankets, biscuits and pies. Mary Minrath, the home supervisor who last fall had been sent from town to help with the canning, brought the peach cobbler that had taken honorable mention at the Cotton County Fair. Bette Hazelton, the bank manager's wife, brought a box of second-hand clothes she'd collected from the congregation at Florence Baptist. Camilla Rawls, the doctor's wife and the president of the local chapter of the WCTU, brought two golden-edged, pocket-sized Bibles. Every child of God needs his own. Even the chain gang that made its way down the road left a gift stuffed in the mailbox, a bouquet of blue hound's tongue picked from the shoulder of the straight. They came by cart and by foot and by automobile, hoover wagons and two-wheeled jigs, feigning errands to the crossroads store, delivering news. Some clucked and cooed, some shook their heads. All of them prayed over the cradle. Haven't seen you in church, Alma, said Josie Bird, whose daddy owned the biggest peanut farm in the county. She was leaving for Emory for a nursing school, and she wore a new pair of leather shoes, white with white laces, so clean they hurt Alma's eyes. They got Mary Collier in your place in the choir, and pretty as she is, she sings like a gopher frog. Elma said she'd be back in church when she was ready, when the twins were old enough to travel, and the women left with a knowing nod, sometimes a hand on Elma's shoulder. If I didn't see them with my own eyes, Josie's mother whispered to Josie on their way out the door, I'd say those babies came from two different wombs. A week after delivering the cobbler, Mrs. Minrath returned in her starched apron, her leather ledger at her side, saying, those tomatoes in your garden aren't going to can themselves. Elma said she wouldn't be needing any help this year, thank you kindly. We got our hands full with the babies. Mrs. Minrath pursed her fat, flat lips. Then it would seem you could use all the extra hands you could get, especially in times like these, and without any womankind around. I got my nan. She's a plum, miraculous can canner. We've been canned since we was as tall as the hem on your dress, Mrs. Minrath, even without a book to write it all down in. Mrs. Minrath looked around Elma and into the house where Nan was holding baby Wilson. She shook her head. Poor children, she said, and turned and walked down the steps. People came to help, and Elma sent them away. It was true that she lost some tomatoes. Her father let her tend the garden, but alone she couldn't pick them fast enough. She canned what she could, and the peaches and berries too, and pickled the peppers and carrots, sweating over the stove. She ate the cobblers and biscuits and pies, hating every bite. But she was hungry, and so were the babies, and they were delicious, those wicked, wicked pies. She fed the chickens and the guineas and the hogs and the mules, trapping a high-pitched hum in her mouth, and milked the cows, April and June, Anna and Margaret, and separated the cream from their milk, saving the skim for the hogs. It's all they want us for, ain't it, girls, she said to the cows, tugging the full furred mounds of their teats. Milk, milk, and more milk. When she was held up feeding the babies and couldn't get out to the barn until dawn, their udders were engorged as globes, veined with rivers of ducks. Ain't it the worst, girls, she said. 
When she was held up with her chores and forgot to feed the babies, her own milk would mess the front of her dress, and then there was no ignoring it. And then she'd pull the shutters and sit back in the rocker and settle a baby into her lap, or two if she could manage, closing her eyes and letting the ache ease. And then there was nothing in the world but the babies. No visitors, no reporters, only their billy goat mews and the buttermilk smell of their warm heads. One sunny morning at the height of summer, a truck pulled up in the dirt driveway and a woman with knee-high boots climbed out of it. Her short hair was yellow as a cornfield. Alma stood barefoot on the porch, fiddling with the pins that held up the great pile of her hair. As the woman made her way up the driveway and reached to shake her hand, Alma feared she was from the Home Demonstration Club or the WCTU on a mission to save her vegetables or her soul. The woman said, I'm here to see the Gemini twins. Alma let her hand fall, loose as a dish rag. They're not Gemini, she said. They're just regular. She was a dog breeder on her way to Florida, come all the way from Atlanta. Out of the wooden truck bed where a dozen dogs yapped, she scooped up two Labrador puppies, one the color of butterscotch, the other oily black as a crow. They're called Castor and Pollux, she said. Every child needs its own dog. Her father came in from the field and thanked her, and the dogs jumped on him, and he laughed. What was there to laugh about? Elma watched their pink tongues lapping at her father's hands. This was their reward for killing genus. Dogs. We can't keep them, Elma said to the woman. We got enough to look after with the babies. Of course we can, said her father. Dogs look after themselves. And he made Elma take the woman into her room, where the babies now shared a larger crib that Juke had built. The woman leaned over the sleeping twins, but didn't pray. Would you look at that, she said. Please don't touch the babies, said Elma. They're still fragile. They were born small. They look strong, said the woman. Especially this boy here. That's hybrid vigor. Alma joined the woman at the crib, pulling the quilt to Wilson's chin. Most people don't believe a woman can have two babies from two fathers at the same time. They think it's witchcraft, don't they? Or just tales from Bible times? Elma felt a sudden pressure in her chest, like a blush or a rush of milk. With dogs in the wild, it happens all the time. You take any bitch in heat, there's as likely as any to have a different, um, sorry, there's as good a chance as not that every mutt in the litter is going to have a different daddy. That's so, said Elma, head cocked. One of her pins sprung out of her hair and she bent to pick it up, then took it between her lips, chewing it over. Your babies will be fine, the woman said. Black or white, they're fixing to be strong. Of course, Wilson wasn't true black, nor was he red like Isaac's child Esau, though under his skullcap was a rusty shock of hair, like the bronze wool used to scrub the pans. When he'd grown into his skin, he was a warm, loamy brown, the color of the earth tilled for seed, sand and silt and clay mixed together. And when his eyes finally settled, when he could stare back at the faces that loomed over the crib and hold them in focus, they were a pale gray-green. You didn't have to look twice, some said, to see those eyes were Elma's. Winifred, though, already she was called Winna Jean, or just Winna. She took after her father. When her skin cooled from the pink of infancy, she was white as a gourd, with Freddie's sun-bleached hair, even before she'd seen the sun. It wasn't until years later, when the twins spent their days running between the house and the fields and the barn, that their freckles came out, like stars appearing in the night sky. If you wanted to believe they weren't twins, and at some point everyone did, even the twins themselves, as often as they wanted to believe that they were, their freckles were there, finally, to connect them. Castor and Pollux joined in their immortal constellation. 
When they were still babies, Elma dressed them head to toe, even indoors, even in summer. She wanted to protect them, to hide them, to make them more the same. You couldn't blame her. After all, Juke said to the visitors, she'd been expecting only one. When she was pregnant, singing all the pretty horses to the baby kicking in her belly, she'd sewn six identical guano sack dresses, stitching them together with hay bale twine. When two babies came instead, she'd dress both of them in the sacks. If she could have, she would have stitched the babies together at the waist, like Siamese twins. Sometimes it seemed she wanted to believe Wilson and Winna were one child, or that she needed others to believe it. It didn't matter how the babies came to be. Babies were babies. Even Juke believed that. Of course I love them both the same, Alma told the women from church, the reporters who tracked white clay across the floor. She followed them with a broom. All children live in the kingdom of God, don't they? And they nodded with certainty, saying, Amen, and praise his name. But they were thinking of all the things she might have done with that baby, all the doorsteps she might have left him on in the middle of the night. The colored school, the colored church, in a basket on the creek. She could see the scheming in their eyes, the stories they were writing in their heads, just like they wondered what had happened between Elma and Genus Jackson in the cotton house or creek or cornfield, a cornfield she hadn't even been in, but they were following her there. In some of their eyes, doubt. They'd seen their share of mulatto babies. The Jessops were as liable as any country family to have some black blood along their line, black blood that decided to rear up and show itself. The white youngs who owned the tobacco plantation and the black youngs who owned the juke joint. You think they ain't kin? A white farmer, drunk enough, might be heard to say to his wife. This was raised as a diversion because that white farmer might have himself a favorite colored girl in town or in a shack, and likely as not, his wife knew the girl's name. It wasn't a miracle, some thought, just a disgrace. Thanks. Hello. Oh. Thank you. I, I just finished this book today. Has anyone finished it? Oh my God, there's so many great twists. My husband finished it. I was, funny. Yeah, he better have finished it. I, at the end, I was like, oh my God, oh my God. Anyway, I loved it. Oh, I loved it so much. It's such a beautiful, big, ambitious, stunning book. So I'm really excited to be here to talk. I have so many questions, but I won't give anything away. Don't worry. Um, I guess my first question is, um, this is sort of the obvious question, so we'll just start there. Mm -hmm. You're not, I know your dad is from Georgia, mm -hmm. and you grew up hearing a lot of stories about that. Mm -hmm. um, so can you just talk a little bit about that and the seed for this particular narrative? Because I'm interested in how you took those kind of fam family legends mm -hmm. and community narratives and then shaped them into this very particular story. Sure. Um, yeah, my dad was born in Georgia in 1932 um, uh, to a family of sharecroppers. So I grew up hearing a lot about growing up on the farm during the Depression and um, was really just charmed by so many stories about growing up in this big family and, um, you know, working hard, innocent fun, my dad painting himself with tar, his brother washing him off with kerosene. My dad's brother telling him if he kept a rock in his pocket, it would turn into a potato. Or maybe it was a potato into a rock. I can't remember. You know, like really sort of sweet stories. Which about, are in the um, book. Some of them are. Yeah, yeah. a few of them are. Um, so the book really isn't based on his life or my family's life. Um, but it's really informed by the world that he grew up in. Um, 
it is informed very much by the landscape. So I took a, a few different research trips, three different trips down to Georgia when I was working on the book. And the first was with him. So just going back and seeing the land through his eyes was really important. It had been a long time since we'd been back to the land that his family had um, had farmed. And just sort of seeing it through his eyes was pretty incredible. Um, we were approaching this these 200 acres that they used to farm. And um, he was 80 at the time. And... Um, has a cane and doesn't get around very well um, and is a photographer so he had his camera around his neck and when we hobbled out to the the farm and sort of rubble of his old house um, he had to get down on his knees in order to see it better because he was 10 when he moved from the farm so he only remembered it as a child and so it was really moving just to see him get down on his knees and look through the viewfinder of his camera um, to be able to see it. And so um, it was really important to me to try to capture um, the experience of being a child on this farm. Um, but his experience was not is was just a single experience, right? And, and uh, there were so many narratives that I knew must have um, been taking place during that time, um, during Prohibition and Depression and, and, and the Jim Crow South, there were so many other stories that I didn't hear growing up. I didn't hear about um, the African-American neighbors, um, the folks who helped you know, their family during the fire. Um, just, uh, just recently, you know, I, I, every time I talked to my dad, I learned something a little bit more. But, um, but I, I didn't hear about the lynching that took place. You did two or years. you did not? I didn't hear about the lynching that took place two years before my father was born, mm -hmm. 10 miles from where he was born. It was one of the most horrific lynchings in, in Georgia history. And so this book was sort of an attempt to marry the narratives that I'd heard growing up with the ones that I hadn't heard. Okay. Yeah. And so you. This was. So how much research did you do before you. And did the specific lives of Elma and Nan and Juke and this idea of these Gemini twins, when did that mm. come into being? Or was that one of the first things that came? Or did you yeah. first do a lot of the research into the history and then find mm -hmm. the story? Or what? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I um, fumbled a through the story for the first uh, couple years that I was working on the book, I didn't really know what the story was. I knew for a long time I wanted to write a book about Georgia. You know, I felt like I had a book about Georgia in me, but I didn't know what it would be. You know, I was always really drawn to the literature of the South and to these stories. Um, but then I started thinking about um, another book, another story, which I thought would be a separate story, which was the idea of these twins. Mm -hmm. When I was pregnant with my first son about 10 years ago now, I was watching a um, documentary on fetal development and um, learned about heteropaternal superfecundization, which is a thing, <laughs> which means twins can have two fathers. And I was astounded um, because I used to watch a lot of Days of Our Lives, but I always thought that that was just bunk. So uh, <laughs> it's a thing. And so I started to think about what it would be like to you know, share a household, share a womb with somebody who's supposed to be more like you than anybody else, but maybe very different than you might um, look very different from you, maybe treated different than you. And um, then when I sort of, I tried that on in a lot of really bad 
bad, there are a lot of bad fits for a long time. And then I tried to fit that story into Georgia, and it, it seemed to fit because it seemed to me that you know the, this story of um, of twins who were trying to sort of perform a likeness for others when they were really so different um, would be pretty poignant in you know Jim Crow Georgia when um, those differences would not be you know just not tolerated but even punished. Yeah. Yeah. And so the research, you know, came later. Got it. out of that. Yeah. Um, one of the things I loved was the prose. The prose has this kind of sprawling quality, and it, you have an omniscient narrator who can swing into the future at times, and we go into all these different perspectives, and it's really beautiful. And then there are other times where you get into these kind of, like, idioms of Georgia. I have, like, it was like somebody could talk the hind legs off a donkey. Mm. Um, and they're not, like, there was in some, in di the dialogue that you had where she was like, where are you in chorus? She's pretty, but she, I forget what she sings yeah. as bad as a gopher snake or something. I forget <laughs> what it was. Um, so I wondered um, if you were, as you, how did those come to be? Mm -hmm. Were those things that, like, your dad used to say? Did you kind yeah. of make them up? Were you just, like, yeah. getting into the old Georgia speak as you were working? All of the above, sort of. Yeah, I mean, I do, it's a little nerdy to admit, but I did have, like, a dictionary of Southern, you know, mm -hmm. phrases or something, a couple of them. I didn't even know. I'm, of yeah. course, that exists. I mean, I did, you know. I felt like that was sort of due diligence, but also, like, I'm a bad writer. I shouldn't need this. But <laughs> but I sort of felt like I needed to. Um, and But, you know, a lot of them come from hearing my dad's family talk, you know. Come on, hug my neck, honey. Give me some sugar. You know, that was just, um, a lot of that stuff I just heard growing up from my my sprawling family of aunts and uncles um, and then some of it I made up which was fun you know like once once you sort of kind of adopt um, that dialect and then you sort of commit to this fictional world I sort of gave myself permission to like maybe it's maybe maybe the dictionary said hind you know the hind legs off of a mule and I was like I'm gonna make it a donkey yeah. or whatever you know just to um, just to you know, remind myself that this was a place that was made up, and I didn't want to be so beholden to history that um, I couldn't allow these characters to, you know, give them their own language. Mm -hmm. um, there was another line I liked, which I wouldn't necessarily. It actually reminded me more of Laurie Moore, where you say, oh. "Cold and quiet as a bucket." Wow. And I was, and I think that's sort of what's really great about the language is we get this southern atmosphere as well as something that's hmm. not necessarily not hmm. southern but feels poetic I guess hmm. is the only thing I can think of not yes. that southern speech isn't already okay. quite colorful um, so that was one line that I just really loved I underlined yes. it thank you for welcome and for comparing me to Lori Moore of that course. will last a long time <laughs> Um, as far as shifting perspectives, was that, I love to think about structure and ask writers about, like, mm -hmm. for me at least when I'm starting writing, perspective comes immediately. I kind of know yeah. that it, that's how the story will be told and right. it kind of leads me, but I mm -hmm. hear from other writers that sometimes they shift point of view midway through, they're not really sure, and then they swap yeah. it out. So I'm wondering, did you always know this was going to be a story told by many people? Um, yeah, no, I didn't. I mean, I, I did that with my first book. Well, my first book, I sort of told the whole thing in, w in one point of view, in Jude's point of view, um, for those of you who know that book. And then I realized after writing it, oh, this needs to be told in like 
10 different points of view. And so I rewrote the book in that way. So I'd sort of already gone through that experience and sort of learned how to do that. And so I thought, okay, well, I, I got that and I want to try to do something different now because that book had taken so long to write and I really wanted to just, you know, try something new. And so I thought that I had this really clever idea um, that the narrator of this book would be Nan. So um, I thought that I could devise a kind of ancillary peripheral first-person narrator, sort of Nick Carraway style, who could sort of see the world of, of the characters better than they could themselves. So Nan is also mute. Um, and she, so she can't speak, but people assume that she can't hear, that she's stupid. And so um, I thought this would be sort of like the ultimate revenge narrative where she is able to sort of tell the story of these people who have um, harmed her but also love her. Um, and, you know, I thought it was pretty clever and I wrote about 100 pages of it and, um, and it didn't work. So I decided... Why that, didn't it work? Well, it didn't work because... Um, for one, I think um, my readers, I shared it with a few readers, felt toyed with, you know, because she doesn't really reveal herself mm. to be the narrator right away on it, because she sort of can't. Um, and second of all, and sort of more, um, more um, kind of important, um, I was really nervous about adopting Nan's voice, you know. Um, it seemed really risky to adopt the language of this young black woman who um, has been so put upon by this family, and to sort of adopt her voice seemed like the ultimate sort of you know, presumptive move for a, right, a white writer. So I struggled a lot with that, and when, once I decided that I wanted to shift into multiple points of view, like, okay, I'll just fall back on what I know how to do, and maybe this is a story that actually needs a lot of voices um, in order to be told, then I was able to kind of channel some of my anxieties about um, about Nan, and I was thinking a lot about this when I was reading your book um, about because we both, we both have mute, have mute well, we both have mute characters. <laughs> well, your character has her tongue cut out when she's a child. Well, I know, but your character has super interesting selective mutism, which mm -hmm. I couldn't stop thinking about. And clearly, we're interested in this I topic. I know. <laughs> But, you know, so, and I, I when I read the line um, about, um, you know, somebody, everybody thinks they can speak for Seth, mm -hmm. you know, um, that really resonated with me because, um, you know, everybody, especially Alma, thinks that they can speak for Nan, mm -hmm. too. And so I was just really interested in what it means for one character to um, speak for another, what it means for a white woman to speak for a black woman. She gets it wrong a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. You know, she doesn't know exactly what's in Nan's heart. But she tries, and she loves her. But she also isn't really aware of that sort of power differential, I yeah. think, in a way that um, that maybe Nan is, is experiencing it. So... Once I figured out that Nan couldn't really be the sole narrator, she became sort of one of the one of the many in the chorus. And um, I think sort of like my first book, there's sort of a main character, but mm -hmm. um, you know that sort of rises above. You know, I think I think of Alma as probably mm -hmm. the central character for most of the book, and then that that shifts somewhat. Um, maybe the focus shifts to Nan a little bit more mm -hmm. as the book goes on, mm -hmm. and that that was sort of a surprise yeah. to me. Yeah. So let's talk about race for a minute. Yeah. Were you? Ner I mean, obviously, you were thinking about na writing, like what the presumption to be able to write from Nan's perspective, and you're a white woman, as we all can see here. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about 
the responsibility that you felt, mm-hmm. um, maybe other trepidations or what you might have learned mm-hmm. about the process or people's reaction to it now. I'm just curious. I feel like people, I know a lot of white writers who are afraid to write about race, mm-hmm. um, which maybe they should be, and everybody should. That's a big topic that you can very easily get wrong. And I think... Um, as a fellow white woman, I feel you've done a very good job here. <laughs> um, but Thanks. I did feel that race was really treated in a really complicated way. Like you mm-hmm. talk about, like, Elma speaks for Nan and often gets it wrong. And you mm-hmm. can see that they have a true love and a sisterly bond. Um, but there is something else there that's really complicated. And you see that in all these different ways. And you see the way that... Uh, this insidiousness of racism pervades everything, the private and the public in this county. And mm-hmm. I thought that was really magnificently done. Um, and I felt like it's a lot of a lot of white writers in particular, they sort of write books where race doesn't exist because that maybe is easier than to right. offend people. So I wondered right. if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I thought about this a lot writing the book and I, you know, sort of woke up in a sweat about it every day that I was working on the book. Um, and, you know, I definitely, you know, asked myself that question about, um, you know, whether it was better to, or easier to sort of, you know, ignore those questions. And my, you know, the first book that I wrote was, you know, most of the characters were white. There were a few characters of color, but not many. And I really felt that I wanted to move outside, you know, my comfort zone as a writer and just sort of enter a conversation that I felt was really important. And so um, I think there are a lot of ways you can do that. And one of them is to sort of, for me, it, for me, it relates really directly to point of view, right? Like for, you know, you, you have to populate your character, your book with um, characters who reflect the world as it was. And um, so for me, the, the sort of ethical question is, well, then do I adopt the points of view of those characters and then how? And so... Um, I think I probably became more, I hope, more thoughtful and more deliberate about it as I wrote the book when I sort of realized what an undertaking that was. And um, I thought about uh, Claudia Rankine and Beth LaFreda's essay, uh, Whiteness and the Racial Imaginary, where they you know, encourage the reader to, or the writer, to move beyond the questions of permission, language of permission, you know, getting past, can I uh, write from a perspective of the other um, to, you know, how and what for? Um, and, and they also talk about sort of identifying the moments where you kind of um, meet the uh, limits of your um, imagination sympathy, I think is the phrase. Mm. What, is so, that, what does that mean? Yeah, good question. I mean, that was sort of what I was trying to figure out when I was writing the book. Like, where, where are the moments where I feel like I can't imagine? And, and for me, like, you know, that when I, when I really tried to adopt Nan's voice, I think I was finding my limit. You know, I was finding a way that, okay, I'm either uncomfortable or um, clueless, you know, and I don't feel that I can um, really, you know, address uh, whatever it might be. But I, as a writer, for me, it was about making it part of the material, mm-hmm. like making my anxiety, um, which is not really the point, you know, part of the story, even if, you know, the, the white woman character in the book can't really think, you know, very thoughtfully about um, some of the issues that I was really struggling with. Um, she still could sort of represent them. Yeah. Um, and so, so it was important for me just to provide like a pretty wide, per, a wide spectrum of all kinds of characters too, you know, that we have, you know, poor people and, 
and well-off people and young people and old people and men and women and and I, you know, I don't think every book can be exhaustive, you know. I don't think every book can do everything, but I, I tried to present as full a world as I could in this very limited slice. Yeah. I think you did yeah. a great job. Thanks. Thanks for the question. I'm still working on it, as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to start with it. <laughs> do we have any questions in the audience? Yes. Hi. Yeah, right. Good one. <laughs> you have to read to find out who the okay. daddy is. But, um, so I'm really interested in the science of this. Um, you, so what's the window frame for two babies? From Four days. Does it have, how, what's the frequency? Well, we don't know exactly. She's asking what the, what the window where you can have two fathers in one womb That's in right. four days. Yeah. So, um, we don't know exactly how often it happens. We can test for it now in ways that we couldn't before. So, that was one of the challenges of the research was, yeah, DNA, you know, certainly you can just do a DNA test to determine who the fathers are now, but they didn't exist then. So, they had to do blood typing, which was less accurate, but um, it was really interesting too. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we when we notice it, Today, you know, often it is because the babies don't look alike, and so a mother, a mother will ask for a DNA test. So fraternal twins are, like, I want, there's got to be a percentage, right? Sure, but I don't know that we can know because it's only determined if there are tests, right? If you don't test babies for their, for their paternity, then we just assume that there's one father. Does that make sense? I think it's like endlessly fascinating. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is too. I mean, you know, because there's the, these two types of twins, right? That's what grabs me. It's like I said, there are two types of twins. Like fraternal and yeah. identical. And identical. And there's now there's three. three. <laughs> there's three. It's another kind. Yeah. Wow. Other questions? Yes, in the back. Hi. Um, so I really enjoyed your first book and Oh, thanks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it didn't impact it in in a really clear way for me. I mean, I do think it probably made me a more efficient writer. Believe it or not, this is a giant book. I know, but it, I think I probably made some choices um, that you know cut a few corners because I was so impressed with the ways that the screenwriters um, who adapted my first book um, were able to condense, you know, like three chapters into five minutes at the table at the restaurant. <laughs> Why didn't I do that? That's super <laughs> smart. Um, so I think I probably was able to sort of just see cinematically like, all right, what would Sherry and Bob do? How would they get the characters from A to B? Um, so probably on some level I was thinking in that way. Um, I don't really think like a screenwriter in, in terms of plot, but I think I um, write pretty cinematically. Like I can, you know, see, see the picture in my mind and I want the reader to also. So, um, but probably the most specific way that it changed for me is when I was trying to imagine um, that first version of the book that Nan was narrating. When I tried to imagine that on the screen, I thought, oh, this actually could not happen at all because a mute character cannot narrate a story. So, Unless you do voiceover. But how would you do a voiceover if she can't narrate? She can't open her mouth. She doesn't have a it's voice. It's an inner voice. Right, yeah. I know. No, then yeah, it started it's messing kind of with a me. I thought yeah. the same thing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that, for maybe, for many reasons, that narration was not working, but that, that also kind of told me, like, this is totally a weird construct that doesn't exist and maybe I shouldn't do that. Yeah. Do you have a favorite character in this novel? Um, 
I mean, I love them all, and of course, like I want to cradle Nan um, as close as possible. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't love the really vile characters, but um, I really like Oliver. I really I enjoyed. You were going to say I really Oliver. Enjoyed writing him. Oliver is yeah. a doctor. He's the doctor's son, and he had polio as a child. And you hear about how his leg became. What do you call that? Yeah. Um, yeah, he, you know, he had a handicap of his own, so he sort of bonds with Nan in that way. Um, I was just really interested in like what it looked like to be a real sort of progressive in that mm-hmm. in that time and place. You know, he didn't he didn't really fit in. Yeah, yeah, he was my favorite character actually. Oh, good, thanks. Besides Nan, of course. I mean, and they all have freckles, so I like. <laughs> I always like the freckled character. It's <laughs> that easy. Just give a character freckles, and then I'm and like, like, I love her. Any other questions? Oh, maybe. Okay. <laughs> I'm just curious. I haven't read it yet, and I can't wait to read it. It's so astonishingly different in terms of the world mm-hmm. between the two books. And I just, I, I guess, two questions related to that um, of how that's been uh, for you as a writer, like having kind of you know, people who have read the book and yeah. love the first book and love the movie and, and then to kind of come forward as like it's just a whole different terrain and whether mm-hmm. that's sort of a you know it's like I was a hippie in high school you know like <laughs> I have uh-huh. identity as a writer that must be that I'm wondering if that has been weird in promoting this book and then also yeah. moments in writing it where despite how different they are I would imagine mm-hmm. like you're doing the same yeah how it yeah. Your wow, you guys are hitting on all of my worries. Thank you so much. You're just like getting right to it. Um, yeah, I was really worried about writing a book that was so different, um, and I was sort of like, why do I want to write this other book? Like, aren't I a rock and roll writer? And I did feel like people sort of expected me to like, you know, like write like another hip, sexy, fun book, and they're like one and a half jokes in this whole book. You know, <laughs> this is like not a funny book, and it's pretty dark, and um, this is really different. So I think I kind of came to the material in a kind of similar way, even though they're so different. Um, even though, um, you know, the, the worlds where they take place is so different. Um, the first book that I wrote was really based on the world that my husband grew up in, and um, you know, just listening to the stories that he told about growing up on the Lower East Side in New York, I was just um, so charmed by them in the same way that I was charmed by the stories that my dad told. And so for whatever reason, I often feel drawn to writing the stories of people who are kind of um, close to me, but the stories aren't mine. Um, that, you know, they they have this ability to tell stories that makes them sort of, you know, captivating and contagious. And so I wanted to sort of, you know, capture them. Um, and so the that kind of process was the same for me. And, um, and then, like, even even when I think, God, these books couldn't be more different, there were moments where I'm like, you know, sort of sit up straight. And there's definitely, like, there's, like, birth and babies in both of them. Like In your anthology that you edited. Yeah. <laughs> Eden and I met through this anthology, Labor Day, that I edited, and she contributed a really wonderful essay for it. Um, and so I might be, like, moderately obsessed with, with babies and birth stories. So there's that that links them. And then also at a certain point, well, and then there's also, like, Straight Edge and Prohibition. The story is also about bootlegging and about, um, you know, um, substances. You know, which is a thing that I think I might also be moderately obsessed with. And then also at a certain point, I'm giving away a little bit, but um, it's like, oh, this is another book about three people who are hiding a secret about a pregnancy. I guess that's a thing I do. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. 
It's so interesting. I always, I have two, my books, my two books are really different too. Yeah, they and are. I'm always like, they're actually the same structurally, but yeah, nobody structurally, notices because yeah. you like trick them with the content. Right. But yeah. Yeah. Just cool. keep on leaning on the thing that you do well, I think. Yeah, I guess so. Did you have another question? Um, oh, the did you do any research into lynching? Like historically, are they about mm-hmm. sex or theft or what? Well, yeah. I mean, often you know the narrative is that a black man rapes a white woman, right? And, um, that's the often the story that's told. Um, so it seemed like uh, a fair enough one for these characters to sort of latch on to. But yeah, I did do a lot of a lot of lynch, a lot of research about lynching, um, starting with a book called *The Tragedy of Lynching* by Arthur Raper, which was published in 1933, just you know after this action would have taken place and um, I wasn't quite sure where to where in time to set this book um, and then I read that book and learned about 1930 so between 1927 and 1929 there were no recorded lynchings anyway in the state of Georgia and um, in fact, I was doing research at um, the Georgia Historical Society in one of my trips down there and came across this um, headline in the microfilm, which was really astonishing. It was in a Georgia newspaper, um, December 1929, lynching to be a lost art. Oh my God. Yeah, and then if you keep scrolling forward a few weeks, you'll find um, in January 1930 um, that lynching that I mentioned that took place in Irwin County, Georgia, um, where a thousand people participated, you know, certainly from um, from the neighboring counties. And then five more lynchings took place that year. So I was really um, fascinated with 1930, you know, what happened in this, in this state, what kind of forces were at play to bring about that incredible resurgence of violence. And so this lynching in the story is a fictional seventh lynching, essentially, um, that kind of is a composite of all these other stories, which are also in the book. Yeah. Are you working on anything now? No, I probably should have emailed you to say, hey, don't ask, don't ask that. Question. <laughs> I forgot. No, I mean, I don't know what I'm going to write next. Somebody telling you stories that you find. Well, I know. I'm like, who's, who's going to be my next, my next victim? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel a little bit... Um, I, I didn't expect this book to be relevant when I started writing it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I sort of thought, like, who needs another novel about Jim Crow South? Um, we've learned, we've heard enough of those stories, and so I guess I'm still a little startled um, by, you know, how with every passing year this book had seemed to me at least more and more relevant, mm-hmm. and certainly, um, you know, hard to think about the events of Charlottesville without thinking about um, the the 1930ness of the moment. Now it just feels. Um, it feels so frightening in that way. So I think I'm a little bit paralyzed, you know. Yeah. Like, um, I just kind of need to kind of work through this moment first. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for writing this book yeah. and for you. coming. Thank you, everyone, for coming out. Thank you, Eden. Go read her book, Woman Number Seventeen. You'll devour it.
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.